following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Most of you in this room have a heart that wants to protect whether it's a mother or father to children or to spouse or even your parents or civilians, there is within us this desire to protect. It could be the heart of police is to protect, the heart of a lifeguard is to protect, and today you're going to hear, you're going to feel Paul's massive desire to protect. To protect the purity of the gospel, the message that would actually deliver you from condemnation and eternal torment in hell, it would be the message that would cause you to be able to be made right with God and to be able to spend eternity in heaven. And he wants to protect that. In the churches of Galatia, after the first missionary journey, a whole bunch of false teachers swept into those baby churches to malign the gospel, to say you didn't get it right, you need to do more to, in order to be saved, you, you've got to start becoming Jewish, you've got to start keeping the law, you've got to get circumcised, and you need to do those things in order for you to really be right with God. And Paul is shocked, literally, about how quickly this occurred as soon as he got back into Antioch. This is going on in these churches, so he writes this letter the letter of Galatians, in order to actually protect the Galatians and preserve the gospel for them, but even beyond the Galatians, to preserve it for us today. This was a key moment in church history. When we study this, this is the turning point that delivers the Gentiles from the Jewish custom, and it makes salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And this is a moment that was much more difficult than we can even imagine. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul gives an explanation of the gospel itself. And then he talks about his apostleship, making sure that you know that he was chosen by God to do this and given revelation by God in order to be this apostle. This message is from God, not something that he made up. Chapters 3 and 4 is an exposition. It is a doctrinal, textual proof that justification, your salvation, is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, he gives an exhortation in gospel-driven, practical living. So chapters 1 and 2 is very personal. He's very open. He's talking about illustrations from his own life to demonstrate the reality of what the gospel is. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he gives principle, doctrinal truths that prove that justification is by grace alone. And then in chapters 5 and 6, it's very practical how this is lived out. But he wants you to know that the gospel itself, what we just sang about, what we're studying in God's Word, is something that is not going to be defeated. You need to understand that the gospel is unique Of all religion, it's the only one that says you cannot save yourself. You cannot work your way to heaven. 
You cannot somehow be good enough, religious enough, go to church enough in order to become a Christian. It is that God has to do the work for you. Can I hear an amen to that? Every other religion is working its way to God, doing something, adding something to that. And so he's telling you this is never going to be defeated because it is reflective of the the actual character of God. God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. God is a loving God. Yes, he is a wrathful God. Yes, he is angry. And yes, there will be judgment. But those attributes are tied to the gospel itself. Are they not? The very fact that we're given salvation is that God chose to love us. The very fact that we can be saved is God was merciful to us. So it's tied into that. It's never going to be changed. You know what it's like? You ever seen a steel girder on a skyscraper? You ever seen that the giant metal girder? Take a baseball bat and just whack away at that, right? Whack away. What's going to happen? The baseball bat's going to erode eventually, and the baseball bat's going to break, correct? It's not going to change the metal girder. That's the gospel, the metal girder. These Judaizers are the baseball bat, whacking away. It's not going to change. God is sovereign. He's going to protect his gospel. It's reflective of his character. But even though that's true, here's the tension, friends. You and I need to protect the gospel. You and I need to be responsible to protect it for future generations, for baby Christians in our midst, for almost Christians in our midst. We need to preserve the truth of the gospel, not add anything to it. You say, Chris, is it really that important? Yes, point number one in your outline tells you that learning from Paul's example in protecting the gospel message is what we need to be about. We need to learn from Paul's example. We need to make sure that there's no division. There's no social gospel added to it. There's no Paul's new perspective on justification added to it. It's just the gospel by grace through faith in Christ alone that is going to cause you to be born again. You rely, you believing, you trusting in Christ, not doing anything to earn it. In fact, God forces, I believe, in this particular setting, a, a confrontation. He forces a clarification of the gospel, and that's chapters 1 and 2. And now it moves up the timeline now, 14 years later than we were looking at last week in chapter 1. We're now in chapter 2. First in your outline, the protecting circumstances. The protecting circumstances. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of how many years? 14 years. 14 years. 14 years. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along also. This is now the time of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is the big question about Gentiles that is dealt with by all the officials, all the apostles of Jesus Christ had to be resolving this issue. Can Gentiles be saved by grace alone? Can Gentiles be saved by grace alone without becoming Jewish in practice? Can they be saved through faith alone without keeping Jewish ceremonial law. So Paul goes to Jerusalem for this particular conference, and who comes along with him? Two guys, very important, Barnabas, and who else? Titus. Barnabas is Paul's first ally. Barnabas is the one who vouched for him before the apostles in Jerusalem. Barnabas is one who is his traveling companion on the first missionary journey. Barnabas is the super-giving, gracious lover of men. 
As Barnabas has talked about in the, in the New Testament, it is like, wow, this is the guy that everybody loves. He is so gracious. He is so godly. You know what he did in the early church when all these brand new baby Christians came to Christ? They didn't want to go home. Well, then the early church is burdened with how are we going to feed all these people and house all these people. So Barnabas, on his own, sells a tract of land to raise money in order to provide for all these baby Christians. He just did it on his own. Nobody told him to do it. He did it. Now listen, that's more than a sacrificial gift. When you give land away, you're giving your family heritage away. There's nothing to your children to inherit it. We're, we're looking at our culture and we're looking at, you know, a very materialistic culture. We're not looking at land per se. There's an agrarian culture. When you give away land, you're giving away your future. He sold that land sacrificially in order to provide for those people. He is beloved by people. He is the most beloved Jew in the New Testament. He is spoken of in such high terms, and here he is trusted, beloved, influential with Jewish Christians as well as with Gentiles. So Paul reminds his readers, Barnabas came along. Barnabas came. He wants to convince Jewish believers that Gentiles don't have to live Jewish in order to be saved. And then he's also going to communicate that, listen, it's, it, this is the character of a Christian. So with Barney comes Titus. Titus is a spiritual child of Paul. And he is an apostolic co-worker. Titus is an effective and very powerful minister, a co-worker. Not merely under Paul. Titus on his own appoints elders. He on his own is the one. Are you ready for this? kind of want to grab your chair. Titus is the one who solved. Are you ready? The Corinthian problem. We're talking, if you know any church in the New Testament that has problems, you automatically think the Corinthian church. Titus is the one that went in there and finally straightened it all out. Titus did that. He is an amazing guy. And Titus is a Gentile. He's a Gentile. He's not circumcised. He is the poster child example of a Gentile believer who is born again, follows Christ, without adopting Jewish customs, Jewish ceremonies, or Jewish circumcision. So the very circumstances of who Paul has with him, his trip, he's got the most incredible Jew with him, he's got the most amazing Gentile with him, and this actual circumstances protects the truths of the gospel. It's demonstrating the reality of what we see today, which is normal for us today, not normal for them back then. Back then, almost every believer was a Jew so the gospel was just making inroads into the Gentile world at this point. And so this is a very traumatic time. But also you'll find that God is going to make this really significant by second in your outline, the protective calling. The protective calling. In fact, look at verse 2. It says, it was because of a what? A revelation. God gave me a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, can you tell this is very personal? I mean, look at the number of times the I is used. I went up, I submitted, I preach, I run. Very personal, very specific. But verse 2 is often misunderstood. When you look at it there, unless you're really thinking, you might go the wrong direction. Here's the wrong direction. When you read verse 2, it seems like Paul's concerned that he was wrong. That he might have had the wrong message or maybe the wrong audience, the Gentiles. 
So he returned to Jewish Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles privately to confidentially get confirmation that the gospel was correct. That is not what this passage teaches. What I just told you is not the focus. Look at verse 2 really carefully. He went to Jerusalem, Paul did, in response to a revelation from God. Paul has direct access to God and gets direct information from God. Paul already told the Galatians he received his gospel from the very lips of the risen Christ in chapter 1, verse 12. So, does it make sense to you this morning for Paul to get revelations directly from God and then try to get affirmation from people over that thing? Does that make sense to you? You get a direct revelation from God. Is there anybody else you have to ask? Answer? No! Okay, that's not going on. And if Paul was so uncertain about his gospel... Why did he wait 14 years to go check it out? That doesn't make any sense if that's what you take that verse. Paul already taught the Galatians in chapter 1 verse 8 that they should reject Paul himself if he should ever change his mind about the gospel. Okay, so he's already said that. So nothing is threatening Paul's certainty of the gospel. But something is threatening Paul's ministry to unsaved Gentiles. See, if the other apostles don't confirm his message and renounce these false teachers, then the gospel will be in question to new believers and potential believers. The false teachers were telling these almost Christians and young believers that Paul was preaching a gospel that was inadequate. It just wasn't enough. You need to add some stuff to it. They said it's, it's really not complete uh, it's not as the original apostolic gospel preached by the Jerusalem apostles. Now, now try to get this world with me, okay? These apostles in Jerusalem are Jewish. Are you with me on that? So they're still following some of the customs of the Jewish culture, correct? So it would be very easy to think that, well, then if you're going to be a Christian, you should be Jewish in culture like the original 12, like Jesus was. Are you tracking with me? So logically, you would think that, but that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, for all nations, regardless of your customs. Are you tracking with me? So that's what's going on here. So understand, Paul's trip was not that he was afraid that the Jerusalem apostles didn't have the true gospel. What he did fear was that the Jerusalem apostles might not be loyal to the true gospel. Say, what do you mean by that? That one of the one of the twelve might acquiesce to their custom. Are you tracking with me? They might say, you, you should be Jewish because we're Jewish, and so we want you to be Jewish. You say, oh, Chris, that would never happen with the twelve. Later on in this chapter, it does happen. Peter is exposed at the end of this chapter as an apostle who drifted away and began to act more Jewish than Gentile or basically maligning the gospel himself. That's what Paul's concerned about. He wants to make sure there's a distinction there. So he met with these leaders privately, not because he was afraid that his message was wrong. He knew his message was the only true gospel, but because it had come directly from Christ. Rather, he met with these leaders to privately keep out the spies that are referred to in verse 4. We'll look at them in a minute. And to avoid any open disagreements that might add fuel to the fire of controversy and make things worse for those 
who are needing to respond to this life-transforming gospel. Now, who did Paul meet with? Look at verse 2. He says, those who were of reputation. The three main Jerusalem apostles were Peter, James, and John. Thank you very much. The Greek reputation is typically used of authority or position of honor, and it refers to these three in a similar way here in this context in verse 2, verse 6, and verse 9. These three are referred to in this passage. The false teachers would errantly say that the Jerusalem apostles support their heresy. These false teachers are saying, hey, these guys in Jerusalem, they're Jews, and they're, they're circumcised, so you should be circumcised. And Paul says here, look, he met with them. He met with Peter, James, and John, the main three, and they are on the same page with the gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. They're on the same page. So he's trying to let them know that, you know, you don't have to be Jewish in this track. I mean, probably some of you in this room have been in a situation where you were threatened with a lawsuit. I don't want to ask your hands raised or anything. But understand, when you do that, most people are really careful and cautious. Not because you can't prove your case. You're careful and cautious because lawsuits are really demanding, they're really time-consuming, and they're really costly. Are you tracking with me? That's why you do it. You don't want to go down that road. Well, really like that, even though Paul is confident that he's got the truth, the gospel. Okay, I, I can win my case. Now, he's been preaching the true God-revealed gospel. He had no interest in getting embroiled in a long, drawn-out suit between Jerusalem and Antioch, between Jew and Gentile, between that which would hinder their ministry or confuse new believers as the simple truth of the gospel of salvation by grace. Listen, he doesn't want that to get into an argument because it's going to mess it up for everybody that hears it. You know how sometimes, mom and dad, is this true of you, that you might have a disagreement with each other and you take it into another room so your kids are not a part of the argument. Is anybody with me? You don't, don't, don't raise your hand, but you're with me. Well, there's a little bit of that going on here where the apostles are saying, we're going to go separately and make sure that the kids are not experiencing this disagreement or debate. It ends up being there was no debate. It was really wonderful how it turned out, but Paul's being very careful. He wants to make sure that the truth that God did all the work in saving you is preserved. That God is the one who does it. That believing, not doing, is the issue. And, and that it's not being Jewish, it's just believing Jesus. Are you tracking with me? The gospel of grace. So Paul's apostolic calling, in fact, that he had direct revelation from God concerning the gospel is also another way God is preserving the truth of salvation. That should point us to big point number two, develop a passion for the purity of the gospel message. Develop a passion. I, I'm hoping today you will develop a passion for the purity of the gospel message. It's essential that you develop convictions, not just for you, but for everybody you come in contact with, every person of another faith, any, anybody comes with another religion, anybody that you know the good news announcing that God did all the work on our behalf, that you can tell that. The truth that you are forgiven and cleansed that God opened your eyes and gave you sight, that he changed your status. You, in this room, used to be, if you're saved, used to be the enemy of God. God, you were God's enemy, and he made you his what? His friend, not only his friend, his family. 
I mean, he changed your status. Uh, you were under wrath, and now you're under his grace. You were separated from God, and now you're intimate with Christ. You were deceived, and now you're a disciple. And observe verses 3 through 10. Would you look at these in your Bible? Very important that you look at them. There are five verses in your Bible, in verses 3 through 10, that begin with the word but. You see that there? Look at verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 through 9. But, 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 but. Okay, now you're a good Bible study person, so you're going to see that. And then in verse 10, he gives a final concluding comment, making up six points of this paragraph. This is where we draw the points from. These are separate arguments. And Paul is teaching the Galatians that the gospel message cannot be altered. It cannot be mixed. It cannot be added to. It cannot be uh, tweaked in a, just a light way. It can't be added social issues. It can't be Paul's new perspective. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he's teaching that, and he wants to make sure that you know that the gospel plus something will send you to hell. And it'll send your kids to hell, and your grandkids, and your relatives. It's plus nothing. Plus nothing. It's the work of Christ. The false teachers are teaching something totally different. Paul's teaching the gospel of faith in Christ is for people of all cultures. Everyone, all nations, that's what tongues was all about. All languages, it's going to everybody now. But the false teachers claim not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. That's what the false teachers are saying. What are they saying? That not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. That's what they're saying. So if the Jerusalem 3 or 12 apostles side with or even merely tolerate those who are teaching against Paul, this would split the church. This would divide the early church. Neither side would have accepted the other fully, and they would have questioned the other group's salvation. The Gentile churches would doubt that Jewish churches really had faith in Christ, and the Jewish churches would also doubt the salvation of the Gentiles. Look what John Stott says in that quote in your outline. He put it this way, It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, but could they approve of a commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God? Don't you love that? Listen to this other commentator. He says, the other apostles had stayed in Jerusalem at this time. Later on, they scattered. But had... Not, they had not worked out the implications of the gospel for Gentiles who were converting from paganism. They, they simply had not confronted most of these issues practically. They'd never left Jerusalem yet. It would have been extremely easy for them to miss the implications of the gospel when it came to living as a Gentile Christian. It might have felt natural for them to say, of course all Christians should eat kosher. But the ramifications of such a small mistake would have been enormous. There would have been two opposing parties within Christianity, those who are of grace alone and those who added external behaviors to that internal belief in order to be saved, end quote. That's why Paul shouts in verse 4, freedom in Christ is under threat. That's why he says in verse 5, the truth of the gospel is at stake. This meeting could have split the church. It was difficult. No wonder Paul had fear. 
because he knew the consequences. If this didn't go well, it was going to affect Christendom and the message of Christianity and basically your salvation today. It would have totally messed it up. No wonder Paul was really, really intense about this. And he gives us, but, 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 as well as one closing point, six points to help us protect the gospel. What are they? Okay, these are for you. They are first in your outline, no compelling. No compelling. Look at verse 3. We haven't made much progress, but we'll get now. Here we go. Verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be what? Circumcised. Every true believer here knows, that throughout history has also known, that to become spiritually clean and acceptable through Christ alone and not through any deeds or any rituals. Thus, the acceptance of Titus by the Jewish believers is a vivid illustration of this truth. What you're seeing here is Gentiles can become full members of God's family without becoming Jewish in custom or culture. The Jerusalem Jewish apostles did not compel Titus to become circumcised. This acceptance by these Jerusalem Jewish apostles is a radical public statement. Radical public statement for the gospel to be by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In fact, at the heart of the work system proposed by the Jewish false teachers was the Mosaic commandment and custom of circumcision. In Acts 15, the false teachers actually said, you have to be circumcised to be saved. That's what they were demanding at that church council, which they rejected. But Paul and the Jerusalem apostles denied that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Ultimately, settling the issue at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And as a true believer, the Greek Gentile Titus is living proof. He's basically uncircumcised, and circumcision and the Mosaic regulations were not a prerequisite or even necessary components of salvation. And when those Jewish circumcised apostles who had lived with Jesus for three and a half years and ministered with him, did not compel Titus to be circumcised, it actually verified the Lord's rejection of the Judaizers. His rejection. This truth is repeated throughout the New Testament. Probably three of my favorite passages in the New Testament. I know that sounds weird, but listen to these. These are incredible passages, basically minimizing the externals and really going for the heart. One of the big, big focuses of a healthy church is to not focus on what you look like, is to focus on where your heart's at. Are you tracking with me? And that's what you hear in these passages. Listen to them. Look at them. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Don't you love that? Galatians 6.15, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, Jew or Gentile, but the what? New creation, that you have been born again, that you are new in Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God from a heart that wants to obey. So the external ceremony of circumcision or non-circumcision, that's nothing, but the internal faith working through love, being born again, being a new creation, and keeping the commandments from a heart that wants to obey, that matters. Not your Bible cover. Not your bumper sticker. Not your t-shirt. The gospel does not require external symbols. It requires 
an internal transformation. Can I hear an amen to that? You must. Listen, if you're here, you may have been religion for years. You may have been going to Christian churches for decades. But if you are not born again, where you now have a new heart that wants to follow Christ, that wants to obey Christ, even when you don't, even when you fail to, then you are not a Christian. You must have an internal heart that has been transformed and it will change your wantometer. Okay? You'll, even in your disobedience, you'll be going, I really still want to obey. You'll want to because He made your heart want to. He did that, not me. He did that. A new nature. Do you have it? Are you transformed? That's the most important thing I could tell you today. Are, are you transformed? Well, not only that, but secondly, no chains. No chains. Read verse 4. Starts with, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. James Boyce says Paul's description of these false brethren uses a military metaphor indicating a subversive and militant nature of the evil that Paul is fighting here. Would you look at these words? Look at verse 4. Secretly, sneaked in, spy, bondage. This is war. They're going after it. And Paul saw himself in the midst of a life and death battle striving to protect this precious treasure. Listen, you've got... People that are in your family that are a part of another religion, they're thinking this error. They're thinking they can work their way to heaven. That's the issue. They need to be told, you can't. You won't. No one's going to make it. No one. God has to save you. God has to transform you. I'm certain you noticed the use of the word liberty there compared to the word bondage. The gospel frees you. The false gospel chains you. The true gospel is liberty. The false gospel is enslaving legalism. And all religion is enslaving. Christianity frees you. Frees you. You're under grace. These okay, Listen, when you sin today, did you lose your salvation? Yes or no? You're under grace. You're freed. Someone else in a false faith, they, they sin that day. They, they got to go do penance. They got to light a candle. They got to do something to deal with that. Jesus died for your sin, past, present, and future. And when he was on the cross, he said, It is what? Finished. Get there. The false teachers were pretending to be true Christians, they're Judaizing spies. They were loyal to the traditions of Judaism. They were playing their part of followers of Christ in order to infiltrate the ranks of the church to destroy the doctrine of grace from the inside out. And it's intentional. And the best way to destroy grace is enslave believers into a strenuous religious system of works righteousness. Now, you might want to write these down because it requires one prerequisites to merit salvation. Their false teaching causes and requires rituals to receive salvation and thirdly righteous works to maintain salvation let me say it again this strenuous religious systems always have prerequisites to merit salvation rituals to receive salvation and righteous roots to maintain salvation and the word spy out ears they're they're a spy they're a traitor they're in the enemy camp by stealth and these are satan's undercover agents in the midst of the church who are sabotaging the true gospel. They hate the gospel because they are free in Christ, but they don't, they don't look hateful. 
they go, hey, let me tell you something about Paul's new perspective on justification. And they're theologians that, oh, we like their writing on this issue, but they're going to undermine the gospel. They're heretics, friends. The moment they add to grace, they've destroyed it. They've destroyed it. And Paul says they spy out our liberty and they want to destroy it. Even though we are sinners and condemned by the law, in Christ we are free from the judgment of sin. Amen? We are. Christians have been made free. Why? Because Christ bore the curse on the cross for all of His children. And, and children, Christians, you are free from law-keeping. Free from religious behavior. Free from trying to live sinless as a means of salvation. Don't go to the extreme and forget your freedom of Christ is not a license to sin, though. Understand, the Bible warns about that. What did the Lord do? Romans chapter 6, verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 16. Listen to this. Act as, what kind of men? Free men. Do not use your freedom, though, as a covering for evil. Use it at being a what? A slave of God to do what he wants. You first time in your life you can. And this is why Paul concludes verse 4 with, in order to bring us into bondage. Don't start thinking that you have to obey the law and follow the ceremonies in order to be saved. Otherwise, you're going to fall back into that external slavery. When Paul says bondage, it conveys a, a slavery, an absolute slavery to an impossible system of works righteousness. You'll never escape it. You're always trying to earn your salvation. So in coming to Jerusalem, if Paul and Barnabas sought peace at any price, the brilliant light of the gracious gospel of grace would have been eclipsed by the obsolete dark religion of works. If the Judaizers win a victory here in this conflict, the Christian command center in Jerusalem, if they win here, then all the outposts, all the other churches of the true faith, the churches of Galatia, would have suffered similar attacks to legalistic individuals. We would have lost the gospel of grace. So understand, that's why Paul and his associates refused to yield to the demands of the false teachers. Verse 5, look, for even for an hour. They didn't give no ground for an hour. It's like, you know, you're in discussion, you're like, nope, not going to listen to that. Not going to. The survival of the truth of the gospel itself was at stake, and Paul wasn't willing to give an inch. Number three in your outline, no compromise. No compromise. Verse 5, but, he says, we did not yield in subjection to them. No compromise. For even an hour. So that the truth of the gospel, what? Would remain with you. Paul didn't compromise, negotiate, give up, surrender, acquiesce to a single point that would undermine grace for a moment. They never budged. Aren't you grateful? They didn't budge from their position of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. The free gift of salvation found only by your dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ, your belief in Him, and His substitutionary work on the cross. The compromisers pleaded for the circumcision of Titus in order to have some form of compromised peace. But Paul and Barnabas did not yield for a second to the pressure to compromise and arrive at some middle ground. The gospel plus anything leads you to hell. The gospel plus anything leads you to hell. Paul would make considerable concessions to accommodate a weak Christian, but Paul will never yield an inch to accommodate a false Christian, especially over justification. 
especially over salvation. Why? Look at verse 5. So that, look what he says, the truth of the gospel might remain with you, Galatian believers, with you, Faith Bible Church. He's a protector. Paul will do anything to make certain the gospel remains untainted and unadulterated. The verb remain there is, is actually, it paints a picture of a statue. You know those giant statues that they have in Greece? You know, the big giant ones? You, you, nobody's going to walk up to them and move them, right? Right? That's the picture of the word remain. It's like a statue that can't move. It's going to stay. It's going to be permanent. It can't yield to anything. There's nothing that can stand against it. That's what he's saying. It remains. The gospel will endure, yet we need to make sure we don't allow it to be compromised in our hearing in any way. In fact, fourthly, no contributions. Make no contributions to the gospel. The significant men, the, the key three in the Jerusalem church changed nothing, contributed nothing, but only affirmed the truth of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Look at verse 6. But, again, another point, from those who were of high reputation... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Now, Paul, what he's saying is he's making reference to Peter, James, and John, the big three, and those closest to Christ during his ministry, those who will be used of God to write New Testament revelation. All right? This is the first letter of Paul. He's going to write either 13 or 14 more. And these others are going to write about seven more. Uh, about 21 out of the 27 books of the New Testament are written by the big three and Paul. I mean, these are, these are heavy hitters. Are you with me on this? These are the big guys. And yet he's going, no personal favoritism here. You see, what is, why does he say that? Paul regarded God's opinion, God's authority, God's word as higher than anybody else. Do you? If someone comes to you and asserts a truth... Do you say, well, no, no, the Bible actually usurps that? Or do you acquiesce to what they say? This is what's happening here. And Paul's saying, I got direct revelation from God that this is the gospel. I am not acquiescing a moment to that. And if it costs me everything, I'm going to stand on that truth. We need to make sure that the word of God is our external authority. What has happened in our culture, my friends, is the enemy has worked in the last 50 years to remove the authority of the Word of God in the cultural thinking of our society. And now your friends are all looking within themselves for the answers to everything. And their emotions dictate what's true, and it's not true. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter what your thoughts are. All that matters as a Christian is what God says. Can I hear an amen to that? You've got to get there, and you've got to get feisty. Okay, don't just acquiesce, yes, Chris, you're right. Get feisty. You're going to have to say, no, I stand on the truth of God's word. That's it. And that's what's happening here. Basically, he's saying, I'm not depreciating these godly guys. I respect them. I did seek their private confirmation. I did seek a private audience with them. But rather, Paul's defending himself against the attacks of the Judaizers that somehow he's an inferior apostle. Have you... Have you put this together? How many years was Paul in the desert being trained by Jesus? How many years? Oh, you don't remember? Just a few weeks ago. He says it in the Galatians. Well, how many years? Three. Thank you for those of you who remember. It means something. How many years did the 12 walk with Jesus? Ooh. 
Paul was trained as long as they were directly by Jesus Christ. Ooh. Are you tracking with me? Paul's basically saying, look, although these 12 were personally appointed apostles of Jesus Christ, I am too. And Paul didn't need their approval. Paul didn't need their confirmation. He just asked for their, in a sense, affirmation that they and he are teaching the same truth. He had no doubts about his calling. He had no doubts about the revelation from God. And the other apostles made no contribution to the true gospel any more than Paul himself. The twelve, the three, Paul himself received the same gospel direct from God. In fact, there's no competition between them. Number five in your outline. No competition. Read verse seven through nine. It starts with a but. On the contrary seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked in me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed as to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. These key men, the three and the twelve, are not better or worse than Paul. They preach the very same message. They preach to the Jewish faithful and Paul preaches to the Gentiles. Each have a different calling. Each have a different mission. So there's no competition, only complimenting. Every believer has a different calling. Each one of you in this room has a purpose. You do. You're gifted, your background, everything is about that. David, it says in Acts 13.36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God, see it there, in his own generation. Do you have that there? That's what I want on my tombstone. One more time. I, want, I served the purpose of God in my generation and went home. That's exactly what this verse is all about. Each believer has good works that God's prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And each apostle has a different calling, a different task to accomplish. The apostles recognize this unique calling even within their own number. Look at verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcised and Peter had been entrusted to the circumcised. Same gospel. They're preaching. They recognize there are different ways to go about it. Verse 8, some had the gift and ability to communicate with one group of people. Some had the gift and ability to communicate with another group of people. But they are both communicating salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. All of them, not custom. And verse 9 says, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. This is a big deal. Okay, our, we shake hands all the time. We shake hands even at greeting time. It doesn't make a, we're, we're making a covenant. Back then, you shake hands in the way that they, they're basically saying, I am affirming you. I, you are a beloved partner with me. Uh, even though you have different fields of service, we are in fellowship with one another. It is the right hand of fellowship. It's an agreement that we are on the same page. So should there be any works at all? Well, salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But when it's real, you're different. Correct? That's what he says in number six, or sixthly, no unconcerned. That's my way to make it a letter C and couldn't make it work, all right? Verse 10, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. There's fruit uh, from the gospel. 
when, uh, can I put this bluntly? If you have the creator of the universe living and dwelling in you, he is too great a being not to show through you. He's just too great a being to somehow be hiding. If you have been transformed, you are going to manifest Christ. You know this, right? Faith that saves is faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You know that faith without works is? It's not real faith. It's not saving faith. So those who have been transformed by the free grace gospel message will in turn serve, give, and love, and sacrifice, and care for the downtrodden, the poor, the widow, the oppressed, the orphan. It's just going to be, we have the heart of Christ for those people. And we're going to want to minister to them. So what are some truths to take home today? Letter A, salvation is not a tag, it's a transformation. It's not a tag you stick on. It's not a, you know, some, so I, I go to a Christian church. It's, it's not a badge you adopt. You're born again. You're different. You've been transformed. You're changed. You used to be the child of the devil. Now you're the child of God. You're no longer following your father, the devil. You're following your heavenly father. It's, you're not calling yourself a Christian. You are converted to Christ. Are you transformed? Have you been made new? Man, that is worthwhile question. And it's the very question that 2 Corinthians 13, 5 asks, right? The big question, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And what's the, what's the test? That Jesus Christ is in you. You've been transformed. He lives in and through you. Again, no one does it perfectly. No one doesn't still stumble with sin and struggle. Doesn't mean you don't have problems. It means that you've got a heart that somehow in your darkest day you go, I still want to follow Jesus. He's the one that causes that. It's not you didn't work it up. He makes that happen. Do you have that heart that you want to follow Christ? Listen, students, when mom and dad are not around, is it crazy rebel time or is it I still want to do what Jesus wants me to do even if I mess up I still want to do what he wants me to do you got to know Christ in that manner not externally internally it's not a badge it's a transformation letter b salvation is free but it costs you your life Listen, salvation by grace to you is given through faith, but when you receive a new nature, when you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, God puts a hatred for sin in your heart, leading to repentance. It costs Christ everything to give you salvation, but once given, salvation costs you your life. Why does he say things like, you will die to self, you'll pick up your cross and follow me? Why does he say those things? Well, you'd be willing to give up all your wealth and all your relationships to maintain Christ as your first love. You will seek to follow Christ's will over your own will. You will forget your past, you will seek the future that you have with Christ. Your future is more exciting than your past, and therefore it will all be proven by Christ manifesting himself through you. Does he show himself? He's too great a being to be in you and not show through you. Let us see. Salvation is God saves sinners by grace, through faith, in Christ. But if altered, it leads to hell. Listen. It's still happening today. The battle's still going on. Wait, don't put your stuff away. This is important. But he's my favorite author. But if he goes down this road and adds anything to salvation by grace, he is no longer your favorite author. You take his butt and you throw it down and you do what I do. You spit on it. 
See, that's funny. He's now teaching people the way of eternal torment to hell and telling them that's how to be saved. That's the most evil thing anyone can do. You cannot, I don't care how trendy they are. I don't care how much you liked them in the past. If they add, adjust, edit, alter, mess with, condition the gospel of grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, then they are teaching heresy. And if you buy into it, you're headed to hell. Stay away from it. Stand firm. Don't waver. Don't compromise. Don't find middle ground. Don't discuss options. Be like Paul. Be like Barnabas. The gospel that saves is by grace alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we ask that you would take your word and you would transform us, that it would mold us and make us into different men and women, that we would be a little bit more outspoken when we are around others, that we would be demonstrating a, a life that is uniquely transformed. And Father, that we would give you all the glory that you did it all and you changed us and even our desire to obey is not from us, it's from you. And that we would be those who rely on that and and trust in you and, and depend upon you and live by faith. Just trusting in your word and standing on the truth of your word and not what we think and not what we feel. And recognize and give you glory for what you'll do. We love you and we thank you and and ask again that you would make us more like your son. And we give you all the glory for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.